We're pleased to welcome Russell Johnson, a postdoctoral fellow in the Divinity School here at the university. And during the winter quarter, Russell will be teaching an undergraduate course titled Half-Truth, Truth, and Post-Truth about the ethics of deception and how to think responsibly in a world of alternative facts. During the spring quarter, he'll be teaching the course Villains, Evil in Philosophy, Religion, and Film, studying the ways that popular movie villains embody different understandings of evil. And in anticipation of the release of The Rise of Skywalker, we're very excited to have Russell with us tonight to give sort of a summary about some of the key ideas and lessons that he explored in his wildly popular UChicago course, Star Wars and Religion, that was offered this past spring. So please join me in welcoming Russell Johnson to the Oriental Institute. Thanks, Matt, and thank uh, all of you for being here, and thanks to the Oriental Institute. It's a great institution, glad to be here. Um, so as Matt mentioned, today's class, uh, today's lecture comes out of a course I taught last spring. The course was an introduction to comparative religious ethics, using the Star Wars film franchise as a point of reference to compare different conceptions of heroism from different religious traditions and philosophical perspectives. The premise of the course was that you can learn a lot about a group from the stories they tell about their heroes, whether these heroes are saints, walis, bodhisattvas, or Jedi Knights. My brilliant students and I explored these hero stories together for 10 weeks, and I read more papers about Jabba the Hutt than most professors get to read in a lifetime. <laughs> when asked about the religious elements in Star Wars, creator George Lucas said, quote, I wanted a concept of religion based on the premise that there is a God and there is good and evil. I began to distill the essence of all religions into what I thought was a basic idea common uh, to all religions and common to primitive thinking." End quote. This is ambitious, to say the least, uh, and most scholars agree that there is no essence of all religions. Uh, George Lucas, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, in this effort was using Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, Campbell was a scholar of myth uh, and uh, developed a theory called the monomyth or the hero's journey that he saw as distilling the basic points that were uh, essential or at least featured prominently in different mythological traditions, stories of heroes uh, from across uh, the, the ancient world. Uh, I assume some of this is more familiar to you, and so I'm going to be uh, moving past it. Also, scholars of religion are generally critical of Joseph Campbell for um, conflating a lot of things that should be kept different. Um, so today we're going to focus a little bit more on the uh, distinctive features of religious traditions and how they play out in the Star Wars films, rather than the similarities as captured by the hero's journey. Uh, so when the films were released, members of many religious groups identified similarities between the worldview or worldviews of the Star Wars films and the beliefs and narratives of their own traditions. They weren't always vibing with the same scenes, and they weren't always interpreting scenes the same way, but almost every group could find something in Star Wars that roughly illustrates some of their ideas and practices. We could do a lot of comparing and contrasting. Obviously, this was a whole course, and we've got about an hour here. Uh, but for today, the big three we'll be talking about are Christianity, Buddhism, and Taoism. These are the major traditions that probably have the clearest parallels with the Star Wars film franchise. 
In saying that there are parallels between them, I'm not necessarily saying that the filmmakers intentionally worked in references to these religious traditions, though that sometimes seems to be the case, but rather that the elements of the film can help us understand the religious teachings and vice versa. So the theory I will argue today is that of the original Star Wars trilogy, A New Hope is the closest to Christianity, Empire Strikes Back is the closest to Buddhism, and Return of the Jedi is the closest to Taoism. I have another theory, which I will argue for at the end, that the worldview of Episode One, The Phantom Menace, is to Taoism what Taco Bell is to Mexican food. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. In today's presentation, I'm going to emphasize only the aspects of these three traditions that contrast with the other traditions or have interesting analogs I see to Star Wars. My goal is not to give a definitive account of a religion or even necessarily to summarize all of its main points, but to give you what you need, hopefully, to take apart the different mythological, metaphysical, and ethical threads found in Star Wars. In the process, I will be making a lot of generalizations. The traditions I'll be discussing have all developed over centuries. There's internal disagreements within each tradition, and it's difficult to separate a group's religious commitments from their other cultural practices and presuppositions. Saying, Muslims believe this, is sort of like saying, North Americans think this. The reality is always more complex. If you'd like to learn more about these and other traditions, this university has an excellent department of dedicated to religious studies, and I'd be happy to tell you more about it after the talk. With that in mind, let's talk about Christianity and Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. It's unusual to compare the first Star Wars movie with Christianity, since Christianity is, from its very conception, a sequel. Maybe Episode Four was as well. The life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth in the first century are meant to be understood as carrying on a story that began a long time ago, before the shepherds, the wise men, and the little drummer boy ever visited the baby in the manger. <laughs> in the Jewish tradition from which Christianity developed, God enters into a series of covenants with human beings. These covenants are something like pacts or agreements, but in reality more like promises, because often God agrees to fulfill God's end of the bargain even if the humans in question or their descendants don't hold up their end. The most significant of these covenants are with Abraham and Moses, in which God promises to provide for a particular people, the Israelites, and through them bless the whole world. God's chosen people have a set of practices that remind them of who God is and what God has done for them, and these practices serve both to distinguish them from the nations who serve other gods, while also demonstrating concern and hospitality for those other nations. A specific group of people enters into covenant with God, not only for their own benefit, but also that the world might be redeemed through them. In the stories of the Hebrew Bible, God doesn't just care about humans. God chooses to work with and through humans. The logic of biblical ethics is a narrative logic. Basically, because God has done this, we will do that. Because God has promised to provide, Abraham will venture forth from his home into a new land and take on a new name. Because God rescued Israel from Egypt, the children of Israel will obey the commandments. 
because a just, merciful, holy God has chosen Israel to be God's people, Israel must act justly, be merciful, and humbly atone for their sins. Faith for Israel is not so much about belief in doctrinal uh, propositions, but trust that the God who makes promises will fulfill those promises. One needs to act faithfully, trusting that the powerful, loving God who has provided in the past will continue to provide. This God in the Bible is working to bring redemption, working with and through and beyond humans to solve the problems created by sin. Sometimes the people of Israel go along with God in this effort. Sometimes they are sinful and rebellious. Most of the time, it's a mixture of both. And there are particular prophets and heroes who call Israel back to the covenants, back to right relationship with God, and back to the mission of bringing hope and healing to the world. That's all present in the tradition that the authors of the New Testament were inheriting and reinterpreting. So when the Gospel of Mark begins, the beginning of good new, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that's not just saying Jesus is divine or special. That's connecting a particular human being with the promising, loving, justice-bringing God who Mark's original readers would all have already known. Following Judaism, the logic of Christianity put into um, Mad Libs uh, has a narrative structure, which I call the past-future-present structure. It goes like this. Because God has done this and promised to do that, humans can and should act in these ways. Narrative, past, future, present. The past includes the stories recorded in the Hebrew Bible, but also the events of Jesus' life. At the Incarnation, celebrated next week by Christians around the world, God is identified with humanity and relates to people not only as a transcendent Lord, but as a compassionate friend. As the story goes, God overcomes the infinite division between humanity and divinity, between the temporary and the eternal. This past also includes the death and resurrection of Jesus, commemorated on Good Friday and Easter, and it eventually comes to include the stories of divine action for redemption in the world after Jesus' resurrection, including the hero stories of the apostles and the saints. In what Christians call the New Covenant, God, in the persons of Jesus, promises to one day bring about the reconciliation and liberation of all the created world, bringing an end to suffering and the effects of sin. Instead of deception, truth. Instead of disgust, love. Instead of division, reconciliation. Instead of distrust, community. Instead of disorder, peace. And instead of death, new life. This is the vision of future Christians call the kingdom of God. A lot of events in the Jesus story are meant to foreshadow this ultimate redemption. Jesus feeding the hungry, healing the sick, reaching out to those who were considered outcasts and wicked people, and so on. Christians tell and retell these stories not only to cognitively learn about the nature of the God they worship and the world they live in, but also to somatically be filled with hope, the hope that suffering and antagonism won't ultimately have the last word. So the idea is that humans can know that God is loving, powerful, and good because of what God has done in the past, and trust that God will bring redemption in the future, so they can and should act in the present in light of these promises. Uh, this is what Christians mean by faith, uh, and Christians interpret their lives as being part of this ongoing story. 
There are doctrines and creeds, of course, but the fundamental symbolic structure of Christianity is a narrative. For Christians, what it means to have faith is to understand oneself as part of this ongoing story and to act accordingly. For Christians, hope is not just an attitude toward the future, but a mode of acting in the present. Faith, or something like faith, is a major theme in Star Wars A New Hope. The New Testament says, quote, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. On board the Millennium Falcon, Han Solo dismisses hokey religions and says, I've seen a lot of strange stuff, but I've never seen anything to make me believe there's one all-powerful force controlling everything. In response to this, Obi-Wan encourages Luke to put his blast shield down, to trust something more truthful than his own immediate perception, things not seen. Luke's decision to follow Obi-Wan away from Tatooine shares the past-future-present structure. He says, I want to come with you to Alderaan. There's nothing here for me now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Because his father was a Jedi Knight in the past, and because Luke wants to become one in the future, he ventures in the present with Obi-Wan into the unseen. It's a step forward in trust, one of many in this film. Princess Leia also trusted R2-D2 to reach Obi-Wan, and she trusted Obi-Wan to help the Resistance. Later, Luke and Obi-Wan trust Han Solo and Chewie to get them to Alderaan. In each case, there are reasons to doubt this decision. Obi-Wan's an old man. Han Solo is a scoundrel. R2-D2 is, as we soon learn, easily kidnappable. Grand Moff Tarkin even criticizes Leia for being, quote, too trusting. And yet, trust pays off in this movie. It pays off in part because characters undergo dramatic conversions to new ways of living. Conversion is a major element of Christian stories, most famously the lives of the Apostle Paul and St. Augustine. And it's more prominent in A New Hope than the rest of the franchise. Luke's character change over the course of the film is accented, of course, by Han Solo's change from being a self-interested smuggler to being a resistance fighter, but also by C-3PO's change. C-3PO, remember, is complaining throughout most of the movie and even kicks and abandons R2-D2. By the end, though, C-3PO seized his damaged companion and says, you must repair him. Sir, if any of my circuits or gears will help, I'll gladly donate them. It's Christian charity right there. Uh. Stories of conversion to a more self-giving, other-regarding way of life are, of course, not unique to Christianity, but they are characteristic of Christian narratives going all the way back. Each of the movies in the original Star Wars trilogy hinges on one moment, when Luke makes a choice, a genuine choice between two viable options. And that choice has consequences Luke and the rest of the characters have to face. In A New Hope, the pivotal choice is Luke turning off his targeting computer in the trench run. Obi-Wan tells him, use the force, Luke. Let go, Luke. Luke, trust me. Luke is addressed by name three times and invited to trust. His choice to do so doesn't occur in a vacuum. It's part of a pattern of trusting Obi-Wan, except now instead of just trusting old Ben Kenobi, Luke is trusting his feelings, trusting the Force. 
Luke doesn't know if it will work or how, but he has hope, a new hope, a hope rooted not in what he sees, but in who he knows. This brings us to another important moment in A New Hope, when Obi-Wan Kenobi willingly gives his life to save others. This, I will note, has obvious parallels with Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, at, at a summer camp years ago, I conducted a poll among Christian teenagers, and the majority of them believed that the quote, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine, was from the Bible. <laughs> It's not, but they're not dumb for thinking that it would be. <laughs> we can debate whether or not Obi-Wan is a Christ figure, but perhaps a better religious category would be martyr. Among Christians, a special place is reserved for martyrs, a word that originally meant witness. Martyrs are not just people who die for a cause. Martyrs are people who, through their actions, and most often their actions in the face of imminent death, testify to a reality deeper than material existence. To be a witness means, in the words of Cardinal Emmanuel Suhard, quote, to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. Obi-Wan's final sacrifice does not make sense if the force does not exist. It's an act of witnessing. In the scene, Obi-Wan looks to his left and sees Luke watching the fight. Only then, after he sees that Luke is watching him, does a slight smile creep across his face, and he serenely closes his eyes and lifts his lightsaber. His death is not a defeat, but a message, a message to Luke about the power of the Force. It's a counterintuitive action that inspires Luke to make his own counterintuitive action in the trench run moments later. It's an action that gets also echoed in Return of the Jedi when Luke lowers his defenses to be killed by Darth Vader. It's Obi-Wan's sacrifice more than anything that sends the message that there's a bigger story happening here. Bigger than moisture farms and power converters. Bigger than speeders and womp rats. Bigger than space stations and empires. There's a pattern here in A New Hope that's typical of Christian hero stories. People take acts of faith that don't seem to make practical sense at the time, at least not if one's goals are survival or success. And these acts of faith are ultimately vindicated by a promise-fulfilling God, if not in this life, then after it. In A New Hope, though the characters aren't demonstrating faith in a personal God, but in a seemingly more impersonal force, uh, it's is similar structure. The difference is significant, but in both cases, death is not the end, but just another chapter in the story. Luke's conversion in the first film, if we want to call it that, proceeds through a series of steps into a grander and grander drama. Each step is a step forward in faith, risking a comfortable status quo in the pursuit of an impractical hope. With that, let's turn now to Buddhist themes in Empire Strikes Back. As I said, each movie in the original trilogy revolves around one pivotal choice, and Empire Strikes Back is certainly no exception. It's a choice that's often overshadowed by other plot elements that immediately follow it, but it contains a lot of moral and religious significance. Talking, of course, about Luke's choice to leave Dagobah and try to help his friends on Bespin. One of the reasons why Empire is such a good movie is because this choice is a genuinely difficult one. 
it forces Luke to have to reckon with who he really is. A rebel, a Jedi, an adventure-seeking pilot, a disciple, a soldier, a friend, and a son. I'm going to offer one way of reading this scene, this pivotal scene in the middle movie, that focuses specifically on some Buddhist ideas and themes. And in the process, and just trust me on this, I'm going to talk a little bit about Attack of the Clones. Just as Christianity emerged within a Jewish framework, Buddhism began as a religious movement from within a Vedic religious context in ancient India. Like the other Vedic religions, most notably Hinduism, the Buddha taught that, that time is cyclical and every living being is trapped in the wheel of samsara, a cycle of continual rebirth and redeath. A series of dramatic encounters as a young man made the Buddha recognize the first of the four noble truths that life is characterized by suffering, or dukkha. Our bodies are subject to pain and decay, our pleasures are always fleeting and never fully satisfying, and our happiness is often a form of self-deception. This negative diagnosis, realistic diagnosis, resonates with Empire Strikes Back. Anger, fear, and aggression aren't just the path to the dark side, as Yoda says in this film, they are the dominant emotions of Empire Strikes Back. When the movie begins, the characters are all bickering. Han's angry at Chewie, Leia's angry at Han, Darth Vader is angry at a series of dying generals and admirals. <laughs> the characters are also all afraid. R2-D2 is scared that Luke won't survive Hoth. Han is afraid of Jabba the Hutt. C-3PO is C-3PO. <laughs> the universe shown in the movie is by and large a bad place, filled with suffering and also betrayal, failure, and Minox. The Tauntaun dies, the Millennium Falcon keeps breaking, the planets are all hostile environments that don't seem well suited to human life. Space is filled with asteroids, C-3PO gets dismantled, Luke's hand is cut off, Han Solo is tortured. Though there are, of course, moments of happiness, more so than the other films, life in Empire Strikes Back is characterized by suffering. I'll just note, when I was looking up images for that past slide, I discovered that in 2007, they made a Han Solo with torture rack action figure <laughs> for, the, like, for the kid in your life that you're real concerned about. <laughs> and at the bottom it says, ages four plus. Like, yeah, you would hope it would be ages four plus. <laughs> Maybe bump those numbers up. <laughs> Anyhow, um, I want one for Christmas. <sighs> So this is the uh, Buddha's earth witness position of famous meditation pose. Legs crossed, right hand on the ground. Uh, coincidentally, perhaps, uh, this is the same way Ray meditates in The Last Jedi. Hmm. Meditation on the nature of suffering allowed the Buddha insight into the second noble truth. Not only is suffering characteristic of life, but it is desire and attachment that are the cause of suffering. This is the Buddhist diagnosis. Here, Buddhism begins to break with previous Vedic and shamanic ways of thinking. The Buddhist critique of desire is more profound than a typical injunction against greed. It's not that excessive desire ultimately leaves us unsatisfied, so if we only restrain our desires through ascetic practice, we will live more fulfilling lives. It's deeper than that. The Buddha tried this, even exceeding the asceticism of the religious leaders around him. This self-discipline, he ultimately concluded, was a step in the right direction, 
but still caught in the same delusion that besets hedonism, the delusion that there is a self. Suffering for the Buddha arises from attachment not just to material possessions, but attachment to one's idea of oneself. Buddhist meditation is then not a matter of self-discipline, but of coming progressively to the realization that there is no one permanent being at the root of each person, only a string of experiences that we identify as ours. Meditation brings us back to the moment, back to the string of experiences, and away from the illusion of a permanent self. It is freeing ourselves from this illusion that we have permanence, that we attain true freedom from the ongoing cycle of striving and suffering and more striving and more suffering. For Buddhists, humans tend to live like the seagulls in Finding Nemo, always saying, mine, 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 mine. We habitually react uh, by seeking our own self-interest, claiming things as ours, further entrenching ourselves in the illusion that we have permanence, and in so doing, get further and further away from reality. What is needed to achieve peace is to give up this grasping at what is mine and live free of attachments. The mindful, skillful person is then freed to alleviate suffering in other living beings. This brings us, of course, to Yoda. Big Yoda. Big-ish. Um, as we've been discussing, the mythos of the Star Wars universe draws on a wide range of religious and mythological roots, and it's difficult to identify a certain character with a certain tradition. But almost everyone agrees that Yoda is meant to evoke a Buddhist guru or lama. In fact, the name Yoda comes from a Sanskrit word meaning warrior, uh, what Luke initially tells Yoda he's looking for. George Lucas had spent time in India before making the Star Wars films, and it's widely speculated that he based Yoda in part on the Buddhist monks he encountered there. When Yoda first meets Luke, he's playing the role of a simpleton. This is very common in Buddhist stories. Uh, the great teachers pretend to be farmers or madmen when students come looking for them and keep turning them away uh, until after a while, usually, they, they wear, wear them down. Uh, Yoda takes some of Luke's food and also takes Luke's lamp, hitting R2-D2 with his cane and saying, mine, mine, mine. After twice asking Yoda not to take his things, Luke eventually gives up the lamp, and only then does Yoda reveal who he really is. This initial scene suggests that possession and attachment will be key themes in the relationship between Luke and Yoda. As the training goes on, many of the things Yoda teaches Luke have close analogs to Buddhist teachings. Yoda's emphasis on patience and his insistence that Luke focus his mind on the present rather than the future both resonate with classical Buddhism. Yoda's saying, you must unlearn what you have learned is at the heart of Buddhist practice. Meditation is a process of unlearning the entrenched habits of thought that bind us to cycles of suffering and reaction. Yoda tells Luke that he will know good from bad when he is, quote, calm, at peace, passive. This, too, has strong echoes with Buddhism. What's worth noting, I think, is that neither the Jedi way nor Buddhism encourages people to be passive all the time, uh, but rather that moments of passivity are helpful in order to gain the kind of detachment and clarity required to act in the world. 
For Buddhists, the goal is not inaction, but rather freedom from reflexive reaction. Through meditation, one separates the rising of the desire to react from the actual reaction, thereby creating space to consider how to move forward, unconstrained by the cycles of action and automatic reaction and counter-reaction and so on, in which humans are trapped. One thing that I find interesting is that in Yoda's Jedi religion, as well as Buddhism and classical Christianity, when trying to explain how humans go bad, each give a threefold account. So as Yoda says, uh, quote, a Jedi's strength flows from the force, but beware of the dark side, anger, fear, aggression. The dark side of the force are they. Easily they flow, quick to join you in a fight. If once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. Consume you it will, as it did Obi-Wan's apprentice. Anger, fear, and aggression are tempting, they are quicker, easier, more seductive. But the end result, Yoda insists, is being consumed, having your life dominated. These three lead one to lose one's freedom, to lose one's humanity, or whatever the alien equivalent of humanity is. For Buddhists, the right or skillful actions are those that bring one closer to nirvana, or freedom from the wheel of samsara, and the wrong or unskillful actions are those that tether one further to self and to the world. Traditionally, there are three roots, as you see here, three sources of motivation that give rise to unskillful actions, greed, hatred, and delusion. These are deemed akusala. These are what need to be renounced, and their opposites, non-attachment, benevolence, and understanding, should be cultivated instead. This vision of what should be renounced, we could call it evil, but that would be a stretch, is rooted at the, in the heart of the Buddhist diagnosis of what's wrong with the world. Greed is the investment of one's sense of self in material possessions and honors, giving oneself over to desire. Hatred entangles one in the wheel of suffering. We turn our own suffering into a desire to cause others to suffer, magnifying rather than reducing dukkha. And delusion is failing to recognize the noble truths, the reality of existence, to misdiagnose the prob problem and continue living as if the self actually existed. Delusion is here the most central of the three. Our boundedness to the cycle of rebirth and redeath is ensured as long as we don't comprehend with body and mind that nothing has permanent substance. Freedom from attachment is similarly a theme in the Star Wars franchise as a whole. Take, for instance, the following scene in Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. Senator Amidala says, Are you allowed to love? I thought that was forbidden for a Jedi. Anakin responds, Attachment is forbidden. Possession is forbidden. Compassion, which I would define as unconditional love, is central to a Jedi's life. So you might say that we are encouraged to love. So first off, hot. It's that kind of romantic badinage that really made the Anakin Amidala scenes sizzle. Uh, <laughs> we can all agree. Uh, but second, that, that's a really interesting distinction uh, that is made here. Attachment is forbidden, but compassion is encouraged. For Buddhists, compassion springs from yielding up one's desire to possess, dedication to what is mine, and the result is actions that alleviate the suffering of other living beings. This is a dispassionate compassion, 
that comes from an awareness of the impermanence of all things. To quote Buddhist ethics scholar Damien Keown, quote, aggression is thought to be fueled by the erroneous belief in a self and the desire to protect that self from harm. The strong sense of self and what pertains to it, such as my possessions, my country, my race, produces a sharp sense of suspicion and hostility to what is alien or other. The aim of Buddhist teachings is to dissolve this sense of self and with it, the fear and hostility that cause conflict to break out. An important virtue in this context is patience, since lack of tolerance or forbearance is often the cause of violent disputes. The practice of patience depends on an equanimity or even even-mindedness toward all persons, whether friends or enemies. Those who are now our enemies were almost always certainly in another life our friends, so no person will remain an enemy forever." Unquote. On that last point, it's often said in Buddhist circles that in a past life, every other person was your mother or your father or your sister or your brother, so you should treat them with compassion. In Luke Skywalker's case in Empire Strikes Back, uh, he learns in the movie that his enemy is actually his father in this life, uh, the very reason he became a Jedi, which calls into question uh, Luke's own aggression toward Vader in this film. So let's get back to the pivotal scene. Luke has had a vision of his friends suffering and decides to leave his training to save them. Yoda and Obi-Wan, now appearing as a force ghost, encourage him to be patient and to finish his training, and they warn him that leaving now would start Luke down a path to the dark side. Note what Luke says in this scene, quote, I can't keep the vision out of my head. They're my friends. I've got to help them. I can't keep the vision out of my head. They're my friends. I've got to help them. Yoda's and Obi-Wan's response is, in part, a challenge to Luke's attachment to Han and Leia, as well as his sense of himself as a hero, and the reflexive reaction of abandoning one's training to try and solve urgent problems. Luke is also not thinking in the present. This is signified by the fact that he's packing his X-Wing while he's talking with Yoda and Obi-Wan. His mind is elsewhere. He's not concentrating on what he's doing. He's not calm or passive, but preoccupied with the future, preoccupied with what is mine. Buddhists see the root of aggression in the grasping itself that Luke demonstrates in this scene, uh, and the patience that Yoda continually emphasizes resonates with Buddhist teachings. I'm not saying that all Buddhists would agree Luke shouldn't go. I'm just saying this, this particular scene resonates with uh, the Buddhist stories. When the 11th century Tibetan Lama Milarepa was asked by some of his students, is it permissible to undertake some minor activities in the world if they benefit others? He, re he replied, quote, it is permissible if there is not the slightest incl inclination for one's own desires, but that is difficult. Those who hanker after the things of this life are unable to benefit even themselves, much less others. That would be like a man drowning in a swift current, saying he would save another drowning man. Until you have realized the abiding nature of things, do not act hastily to benefit others. That would be like the blind leading the blind, and you would risk being swept away by desires. There will be no end to sentient beings for as long as space endures. So if you are able to practice, meaning meditative practice, the time will come for you to benefit things, beings. Until then, aspire to attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings, holding others more dearly than oneself. Be humble in conduct. Wear ragged clothes. Renounce all thoughts of food, clothing, or conversation. 
practice while enduring physical hardship and mental adversity. This itself will benefit sentient beings." End quote. First, that description sounds like Luke's training on Dagobah. And second, this sounds like what Yoda and Obi-Wan are trying to say to Luke in this scene. Luke isn't ready yet, and if he goes before he's ready, he'll get swept away by desires. The most important and the most compassionate thing he can do is to clear his mind of all attachments and all clinging desires. In the story of Milarepa, a prominent Tibetan Buddhist story uh, told and retold for centuries, the hero has to overcome his own attachment to himself. The villain Milarepa has to overcome is himself, not just his weaknesses, but his very self, in order to escape the cycle of greed, violence, revenge, and suffering. He sings, quote, if one tries to vanquish foes in the outer world, they increase in greater measure. If one conquers his self-mind within, all his foes soon disappear. We see this too in Empire Strikes Back. In the cave scene, Luke is confronted with the fact that his real enemy is in some sense himself. It is the self that Luke needs to overcome, or else his aggression and his fear will be his undoing. If Luke overcomes the self, he overcomes the world of suffering and striving. If not, then the dark side will triumph. Will Luke avoid following in the footsteps of his father? That is the question Empire Strikes Back raises, and Return of the Jedi seeks to answer. Part three. This is the famous Taiji diagram, closely associated with Taoism, that represents the interplay of yin and yang. This is one of many diagrams meant to depict this, but this is by far the most well-known in the West. Here's Luke Skywalker in A New Hope, in all white or off-white. Here's Luke Skywalker at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, in all black. And here's Luke Skywalker at the end of Return of the Jedi, in black with a white patch. Intentional? Maybe. Interesting? Definitely. Hotel? Trivago. If this costume choice does hearken to Taoism, it would certainly not be the only element of the Star Wars universe to do so. The yin and yang may seem like a clear picture of dualism, but the idea of the yin and yang in Taoist thought uh, point to the fundamental unity of all phenomena. The traditional Taoist interpretation of this idea is that there is a cosmic wholeness, which Taoists call the great unity. From the great unity, splits and distinctions happen. First, the one breaks into two, then the two into three, or in classical Taoism, five, uh, and then ultimately we have what's called the 10,000 things, which means everything we see and touch and experience. This diagram, this symbol, and again, it's one of many over the centuries, represents the split from one into two, the prototypical set of opposites and distinctions, yin and yang. It's important to note that yin and yang are not the same as good and evil. Uh, they have a different set of connotations, some but not all of which can be seen here. The point for Taoists is not the division between these two clusters of apparent opposites, but rather the notion of opposition itself. Any separation conceals a more fundamental unity, often a unity made evident through the passage of time. Any attempt to say that A and B are opposites is to some degree confused, 
because it obscures the fact that A is always on its way to becoming B, and B is always on its way to becoming A. Dark gives way to light at dawn, and light gives way to dark at twilight, and so on forever. Cold gives way to heat in spring, at least in theory, and heat gives way to cold in fall. Also, they depend on one another for their existence and their intelligibility. Warm means nothing without cold and would not exist without it. Light means nothing without dark and could not exist without it. Once we can look past all the distinctions we use to divide the world into separate categories, we can begin to recognize the fundamental unity that is prior to both yin and yang. Humans have a tendency to make sense of the world by privileging one side of a dichotomy over the other. Rich is better than poor, happy is better than sad, young is better than old, moral is better than immoral, smart is better than dumb, sharp is better than dull, fast is better than slow, and so on. We make these distinctions and tend to cling to one side of these distinctions or find value on only one side of the distinction. Like, I am wealthy but not poor. I worked very hard to be wealthy and not poor. I am proud of myself for being wealthy and not poor. By doing so, we forget that any one side in a dichotomy depends on the other and is, more, is part of a more fundamental unity, a unity that gets reflected in the passage of time. Wealth depends upon poverty and is always coming from and returning to poverty, and we are under an illusion to the extent that we imagine it otherwise. A classic example is dirt and flowers. Flowers grow out of the dirt, and then they die and decompose and become dirt. For Taoists, the human problem is basically that we want there to be flowers without dirt, and there can't be. That's impossible. It's a delusion. That's a crucial point. This is the Taoist diagnosis of the human problem, and symbols like yin and yang are meant to bring our attention to it and help us get beyond it. Each thing contains within it the seed of its opposite, so opposition is always at least partially misleading. The fundamental unity of all phenomena is for Taoists most clearly evident in nature. The classic way of expressing this is the five phases. The natural world is composed of five elements. Uh, these are different from the five elements in the movie The Fifth Element, um, which is a different OI talk. Uh, stay tuned. Um, uh, so the five elements are wood, fire, earth, metal, and water, uh, but these are actually five phases of the same element. Wood feeds fire. Fire creates earth, ash. Earth bears metal. Metal collects water. Think of mountains promoting rainfall. And water ultimately nourishes wood. Nature is more complicated than this, and ancient Chinese naturalists certainly knew that. But this idea of five phases gives a very rough outline of the interconnection of all things in the natural realm and their ultimate, uh, if concealed, unity. To privilege one phase over the others is a delusion. Rather, we will be most truthful and most powerful, have the most duh, uh, when we acknowledge that everything flows into everything else and act accordingly. This acting accordingly, since it's going along with the natural flow of one phase into another, is called wu-wei, or not action. This idea of non-action also stems from the idea that clinging to one side of an opposition, ironically, drives one further into its opposite. The more a nation clings to security and pursues it at all costs, the more insecure and ultimately susceptible to fear and war the nation becomes. The more a parent tries to control a child, 
the more rebellious the child will become. The harder you concentrate and try to accomplish something, the more you're likely to psych yourself out and become unable to do it. Taoists read history this way too. One dynasty overreaches and tries to control too much, and then it collapses, making room for the next dynasty. Flowers to dirt, to flowers, to dirt, to flowers. The way to gain true power and longevity and calm is paradoxically by not trying to achieve them, but acting organically instead of intentionally. Thus, if you had to give a one-sentence summary of Taoism, you could do a whole lot worse than do or do not. There is no try. As I've mentioned, I think Return of the Jedi is the most closely aligned with Taoism of the original trilogy. The emperor, who is ultimately defeated, continually talks about destiny. He tries to predict the future and force every detail to happen as he plans and foresees. In contrast to the controlling technological empire, the unexpected champions in Return of the Jedi are the Ewoks, who live in harmony with the natural order and ultimately triumph because of it. As I noted at the beginning of the film, Luke is more like Vader than ever before. He's wearing black, and he uses the force choke, Vader's signature move. This drives home the point that we become like that which we oppose. The effort to overcome Vader once and for all has ironically made Luke more like his enemy than ever before. Finally, and most significantly, the climactic choice in the third film is Luke's choice to turn off his lightsaber at the end. That decision is symbolic because it is a lightsaber Luke has been so quick to draw in his previous encounters. Luke brought a lightsaber with him into the cave on Dagobah even when Yoda told him not to, and he drew it before Yoda, uh, Vader did in the cave. Similarly, when they meet on Bespin, Luke turns on his lightsaber before Vader does, and again when they face one another orbiting Endor. Considering Jedi are supposed to be about defense and aggression is the path to the dark side, this, these actions are significant. It also means, by the way, that when Luke draws his lightsaber to attack Ben Solo in The Last Jedi, this isn't a new turn for him. It's a return to who he used to be, his past aggression. And when he casts the lightsaber aside at the beginning of The Last Jedi, it echoes the end of Return of the Jedi. There are plenty of things to criticize in the eighth movie, but people who think Luke's character choices come out of nowhere are wrong. At the end of the third film, Luke looks down at the severed robotic hand of his father, then at his own robotic hand, recognizing that there's greater similarity between himself and his apparent opposite. Think about the, the bit of yin within yang and the bit of yang within yin. In that moment, the logic of opposition ceases to dictate the conflict. When facing Darth Vader for the last time, Luke refuses to keep fighting, just like Obi-Wan did on the Death Star. He turns off his lightsaber and casts it aside. Here, the most important doing is non-doing, Wu Wei. The Emperor promises him one kind of power, the power to control the galaxy, but Luke's power, his duh, comes from not resisting. Luke acts by not acting, and the dark side collapses in on itself. There's a lot more that needs to be unpacked about this scene, and not all of it neatly fits into a Taoist framework. We could talk, for instance, about Anakin Skywalker's redemption arc, uh, or the family drama of the Skywalkers and Princess Leia's involvement in it. There's a lot uh, going on in Return of the Jedi, of course, uh, but I don't want to give Taoism short shrift, 
And so mostly, just for fun, I will now argue that Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, has an even greater resonance with Taoism. It has, as I said before, the same sort of relationship with Taoism as Taco Bell has with Mexican food. Which is to say, not entirely authentic, but an effort has been made. <laughs> to argue for this conclusion, I will make eight points. <sighs> should also note, I have a doctorate. Just felt like throwing that out here now. <laughs> Seemed like something worth mentioning. <sighs> okay. Uh, first, the movie is filled with people making predictions and turning out wrong. Uh, the line, you assume too much, is said twice, as if to hammer home, hey, this is a theme. The Jedi assume that trade negotiations will go smoothly. They were right, but not the way they expected. The Trade Federation leaders assume the Jedi would be no match for the destroyer droids, but they were also wrong. Jar Jar predicts that if he returns, the bosses will do terrible things to him. That doesn't happen. The Federation says Amidala will be easy to control. Wrong. Palpatine says the Jedi will be no match for Darth Maul. Half true. Uh, Watto says he knows Sebulba's going to win. Wrong. Captain Panaka thinks this is a battle they can't win. He's incorrect. I could go on, but you get the idea. Every movie, of course, involves characters not knowing what's going to happen. That's just dramatic tension and also realism to life. But The Phantom Menace keeps having characters think they know what's going to happen, keep trying to make things happen, make plans, and misjudge the future. One theme of the movie is that predictions and assumptions are, in general, best avoided. And this connects with the Taoist emphasis on existing in the moment, rather than trying to discern the future uh, and make it turn out the quote-unquote right way. To be empty and open to what happens is wiser than getting stuck in one's expectations and assumptions. Another theme is the, point two, another theme is the inevitability of change as reflected in the natural order. There's a really significant scene when Anakin has just been freed and is saying goodbye to his mother. He says, I don't want things to change. And Shmi responds, quote, but you can't stop the change any more than you can stop the suns from setting. This sounds like the Zhuangzi, if you've ever read it. Uh, and we've already talked about how the movement of the sun is a metaphor for ongoing changes prevalent in Taoist literature. Third, Qui-Gon Jinn seems somewhat like the Taoist sage. In fact, many believe the name Qui-Gon to be derived from Qi-Gong, uh, which is the Chinese, spelled similarly as you can see, uh, in, when it's anglicized, uh, which is the Chinese name for a set of practices that align one with the movements of nature, most fam famously in the West, uh, Tai Chi. Uh, Everyone else in the movie is stressed and worried about things, but not Qui-Gon. Uh, so you're eaten by a giant fish? How about you do nothing? There's always a bigger fish. Jar Jar asks, where are we Sagoan? To which Qui-Gon responds, don't worry, the force will guide us. The bongo starts to lose power, and Jar Jar says, we should die in here. Another wrong prediction. Qui-Gon responds, just relax, we're not in trouble yet. We're starting to see a pattern in Qui-Gon's actions. Don't worry. Just relax, no need for a plan. Can't get where you're going? No problem, just land on Tatooine. Sandstorm coming? Cool, let's just stay with this random nine-year-old we just met. <laughs> now we're betting our whole everything on a child in a death race? Sure, why not? When Qui-Gon doesn't act like a sage, when he tries to use a Jedi mind trick to control Watto, he immediately fails. Control doesn't work, Wu Wei does. Fourth, Taoists tell the story of politics as a story of people ironically giving rise to the opposite of what they try for. By trying to bring greater security, we sow the feeds, seeds of fear and insecurity and war. 
Similarly, Amidala's best efforts to bring about the political outcome for her people in the Senate are precisely what give rise to the oppressive Emperor Palpatine. Fifth, one theme in the movie is symbiosis. Qui-Gon tells Boss Nass, you and the Naboo form a symbiont circle. What happens to one of you will affect the other. Flowers depend on dirt, which depends on flowers. Light depends on dark, which depends on light. Cold depends on warm, which depends on cold. The idea of the interdependence of apparent's opposites echoes Taoist themes. This concluding scene has Amidala in light colors and Boss Nass in dark colors, in a nod to yin and yang. Sixth, a pivotal scene involves Queen Amidala revealing her true identity to Gungans and kneeling before Boss Nass, saying, I ask you to help us. No, I beg you to help us. We are your humble servants. Our fate is in your hands. This is classic Tao Te Ching, which was written to some extent as a guide for leaders. Uh, if you want to be strong, you have to make yourself weak. Seventh, just like Return of the Jedi, we have a conflict between a more technological droid army and the more natural organic Gungan army. And the army that is seemingly more primitive, more at home in the natural world, prevails over the army that is evidently stronger. Eighth, and most importantly, the final victory comes not as a result of conscious intention. Anakin doesn't have a plan to fly to the Trade Federation's control ship. Note that, control ship. He just starts pressing buttons and things keep working out for him. This is not part of the plan. This is the opposite of a plan. <laughs> the Queen's plan at the same time is failing. He's literally on autopilot, and then when he's not, he says, I'll try spinning, that's a good trick. This is not strategy. <laughs> After Anakin shoots the torpedoes that ultimately destroy the ship in the climactic scene, he literally says, oops. As if to make this point even clearer, intercut with these scenes are similar scenes of Jar Jar succeeding through failure. He keeps dropping bombs accidentally and accidentally destroying enemy droids. It's played off for laughs, but there are similarities between these scenes and Taoist, story, Taoist stories of eccentrics achieving success by not trying for it. The final victory happens not as a result of intention, planning, and heroic effort, but rather by Anakin, like Qui-Gon earlier in the film, being in the moment, acting without acting. He's not doing anything, and yet everything is done. I wanted to include this analysis because I hope it shows that just as attending to the religious themes and echoes in beloved movies can maybe help us understand uh, why we love them so much, uh, so the same sort of analysis can help us see the... Uh, depth and value in movies that at least for one generation of viewers are less beloved. In conclusion, I've argued that the Star Wars films have closer parallels with different religious traditions, but each film still shares similarities with stories and teachings from different mythological, philosophical, and religious systems. It's no surprise that so many members of different religious traditions watch Star Wars and see in it something familiar, but also something new and unfamiliar. After decades, the Star Wars film continue to evoke, the Star Wars films continue to evoke both nostalgia and imagination, and there's nothing quite like them. Hope you enjoy episode nine. Happy holidays, and may the force be with you. <laughs>